Australia. I'm Paul Hunt, Senior Journalist of Energy, Policy and Commodities at Energy News and Mining Monthly. This is a special edition panel discussion focusing on the energy industry in the Northern Territory as part of the annual Northern Territory Resources Week and Southeast Asia Australia Offshore and Onshore Conference, or SEOC for short. There's never been a more important time to talk about the role of gas in Australia, our region, or even globally for that matter. The federal government is pinning its hopes on the upstream gas industry to prop up the economy following the COVID-19 pandemic. It goes further than that. Gas is key to decarbonising the energy market as nations worldwide look to minimise coal use. The Northern Territory is in a unique position one basin or sub-basin is of particular interest. It's called the Beetaloo. The basin has the opportunity to not only shore up the domestic economy, but help countries transition from coal to clean fuels. That's just one aspect of our discussion today. For this special panel discussion, I'm joined by three prominent leaders forging a new future for the economy and energy industry more broadly in Australia. My first guest is Alistair Trier. He's the chair of the Gas Task Force, a government body established by the Northern Territory Chief Minister and Cabinet to oversee the development of this vital industry in the top end. Alistair, welcome. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much for the opportunity. We're also joined today by the Chief Executive Officer of Tambourine Resources. Tambourine is an explorer, soon to be producer in the Beetaloo Basin. It's the joint venture partner to Santos. Up until recently, it was a private company, but as investors flocked to gas companies in the Beetaloo, it listed on the ASX, which can only be described as perfect timing. Tambourine CEO, Joel Riddle, congrats on your recent listing and welcome. Thanks very much, Paul. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And our third guest is none other than Brad Lingo. Brad is one of the most experienced chief executives within the industry and now heads up no less than three energy companies. He is the CEO of Armour Energy, uh, director of MacArthur Oil and Gas, as well as the chairman to Pilot Energy, a wind and renewables developer in Western Australia. Brad Lingo, great to have you with us. Thank you, Paul. It's always a pleasure to update uh, the market through uh, Energy Newsnet. It's great to have you all with me today, given that it's the Northern Territory Resources Week. Uh, it's a shame we can't be there in person, but that's the reality uh, that we're currently in. Let's start by taking a look at why gas is so important to the Australian economy and the role of the Northern Territory in this industry up until now. Perhaps, Brad, uh, you could start in a couple of sentences. Broadly, what role does gas play in Australia? Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's been a, uh, quite a remarkable journey. Um, I started in the Australian uh, gas industry nearly 30 years ago. And back in the day when they were we were going through the Helmer reforms, and there was no such thing as free and fair trade of gas across state borders. Um, and, uh, you know, now we have gas um, linking all the eastern states, including uh, the territory, um, and, you know, we have that free movement of trade um, in gas. And, and, you know, in reality, now gas is the fastest growing export commodity that uh, Australia has. And so it's really um, core um, to both the domestic and the export economy across Australia. Alistair, you're the chair of the Northern Territory Gas Task Force. What does your job involve? Well, firstly, start with the title. There's an old uh, pastoral saying, saying "Big Hat, No Cattle." So, Chairman of the Gas Task Force is a is a is quite a title. But look, I, I've got um, my role is really important. In, in the big picture, it's really about leveraging as much opportunity as we can uh, for Territorians and Australians uh, beyond beyond royalties uh, from the um, what looks like significant resources that we've got. So I really got three areas that I focus on. One strategy and, and looking at the different uh, things that we need to do from an uh, infrastructure point of view, from a uh, stakeholder and engagement point of view, from a sort of strategic uh, negotiating point of view, and also from uh, a commercialisation angle. And I guess that, that leads to influencing and understanding 
uh, where the where the levers are and how you know what, what mechanisms we've got to influence those levers, and then uh, a, a significant coordination role across uh, across the various elements within industry uh, and other stakeholders to try and try and pull a coordinated approach. Well. What Im- impact could the onshore gas industry, um, like the Beetaloo uh, development, have on the Northern Territory economy? Well, if the numbers, uh, I should have been a geologist, Joel, I'm a, forever a, an optimist, but um, if the numbers stack up and, and they are looking increasingly uh, positive, this, this will make such a significant difference to the Northern Territory's own source revenue which is just a game changer in its own right because it reduces our reliance on, on uh, uh, GST as being uh, the fundamental um, revenue provider for the Northern Territory. So that's in its own right just really substantial. But beyond that, uh, the, the opportunities for direct and indirect business um, uh, um, uh, benefits, and I, I don't know if people have seen, but in Impex recently, uh, put out a study on the economic benefits they, they see from their project from 2020 to 2030, and they're really quite astounding. But the impacts figures are based on their project of trend, uh, 10 trillion cubic feet of gas, as I'm sure we'll find out later, the figures in the VLU are you know, multitudes bigger than that. So the indirect and direct benefits, but then the other component is the VLU is in the heart of the Northern Territory. It's a it's an opportunity for the region that, that has never been there before. Uh, Alistair, when we think of uh, gas as an export uh, commodity, we would generally think of offshore Western Australia, uh, the offshore uh, impacts project in the Northern Territory, uh, and of course the coal seam gas fields of, of Queensland. Uh, Ten years ago, nobody had really heard of the Beetaloo Basin Um now there's a lot of hype about it. What's changed since then? Well, starting at the beginning, I guess with um, Central Petroleum uh, in in uh, the Amadeus have been there for a long time and producing gas. So the Northern Territory is a long-term producer of gas. But then we saw the offshore, um, uh, uh, we saw Bay Unden being developed offshore uh, initially through ConocoPhillips and now through uh, uh, Santos and that, you know, that that project they're still they're still investing now. I think a quarter of a billion in infill drilling, um, and then that will lead to the the Barossa. So, from a very quiet and humble beginning uh, twenty or forty years ago uh, in the Amadeus, we're now one of the major LNG hubs um, in Australia. With with the Impex project, we saw not and and. I have to say that project's a Western Australian project that uh, has now got a, a world-class pipeline coming to the Northern Territory. Uh, so that's surely put uh, the Nor- Northern Territory well on the map. Um, I guess on top of that, we've seen uh, a, another significant pipeline uh, in the Gemini pipeline that connects the Northern Territory uh, to the east coast of Australia. So again, all of a sudden, we're, we're part of the whole of Australian story and not disconnected. And then, of course, we've got the Beetaloo. And the Beetaloo, um, we, we sort of first started to uh, get indications that the Beetaloo was significant in about 2009. But over time, um, that confidence has lifted based on the evidence that, um, through exploration to date. As I mentioned, there is a lot of excitement uh, in the Beetaloo. Joel Riddle, you're the CEO of Tambourine Resources. Let's take a look at why you pursued assets in the Northern Territory and the Beetaloo. Uh, was there a moment where you went, you know, this is where we need to be? Yes, we kind of following from from, from Alistair's comment, you know, Tamborn originally was one of the first players in the Beetaloo, having um, acquired our initial EP161 acreage in 2009. And just to give a little, little context, you know, industry initially came out in this Beetaloo area to explore for conventional um, traps back in 1970s, 1980s, and, you know, really didn't have any success. And, you know, what, what, what we saw in 2009 as we picked up the EP161 is a basin that potentially could be explored 
from a shell perspective, we saw what was going on in the U.S. Um, where you know the shell revolution really start you know started really getting going in the early 2000s, and you know by 2009 2010 it was it was really starting to um, develop quite rapidly, and so we were an early mover. Um, we saw the Beetaloo having a lot of the same characteristics as some of the shell plays that were starting to be commercialized. And so after uh, acquiring our initial permit in 2000, 2012, we, we, we farmed to Santos, which led to drilling what I, you know, what industry would say is the play opening well uh, called Tannenbrenner number one in 2013. Um, and what that well really showed us was a 500 meter column of high quality shell uh, in a play called the Mid Valkyrie, um, which the rock properties exhibited. It's very similar rock properties as the Marcella shell, which is one of the pre preeminent shell plays in the world based in, in the US and Pennsylvania. And I think following from that discovery, um, a lot of activity picked up um, there was a number of wells drilled by Origin Energy right to the um, west of us on a uh, bit of acreage that was historically held by Amrata Hess and then Falcon Oil and Gas. And additional uh, wells that were drilled by a private company called Pangea uh, to the west part of the, of the basin. And, you know, right as you know, I think activity was picking up. Uh, there was a moratorium that was put in place uh, in late 2016. And, you know, it, it really slowed the industry down for a, a number of years. And, and, and really, um, you know, drilling started to pick up again in 2019 with Origin drilling a couple of wells. And then we, we were able to open, open up our Tanner Bernie one well that we originally drilled in 2013 and did a vertical flow test. And, and that flow test really exhibited a lot of the similarities that we saw on a log with Marcellus with the early vertical flow test uh, that the Marcellus wells were producing. So it gave us a lot of confidence um, between ourselves and Santos as our JV partner to get active um, this year. Uh, and, and of course, COVID slowed us down another 12 months, but uh, we're active in drilling um, two horizontal wells as we speak. And we think um, you know, with success, if these horizontal wells produce as we as we hope, uh, it's really going to potentially kick off uh, a development um, in in the core area where we're focused as a company. So, so to come back to your question, look, we've been we've been you know really focused in the Beetaloo from day one, and uh, we continue to be focused in the Beetaloo, um, you know, moving forward as we move forward into a development phase. What about you, Brad? I mean, you're leading two companies, Armour Energy and, of course, uh, MacArthur Oil and Gas uh, as a director. Um, you have tenements in the Northern Territory. Uh, what was your reason for exploring there and, and not the Canning Basin or the, or the coal seam gas fields of Queensland? Why, why the, the Northern Territory MacArthur Basin? Um, really, it's, it's a, a little bit of uh, uh, old home week, so to speak. Um, uh, particularly from the, the armor perspective and, and, you know, the new generation of uh, armor's assets in the Northern Territory um, moving into MacArthur. Um, both armor um, and MacArthur uh, are really um, uh, children of the success of coal seam gas in um, Eastern Queensland. Um, armor is, uh, you know, uh, a company that was uh, sponsored and continues to be sponsored by um, uh, DGR Global, um, you know, a multi-commodity, uh, essentially, um, uh, incubator uh, for resources companies. And it really, uh, Armour and, and now MacArthur's journey in the Northern Territory, really grew out of um, DGR's uh, focus on, you know, multi-commodity, um, exploration across the Northern Territory. And um, one of the geologists that was involved in those early days, um, he had actually uh, been an exploration geologist for Amico. And that journey really started with, um, you know, a well that 
uh, you, we see in a lot of uh, companies' presentations in Iconic Well called Glide River 9 or Glide River 9, um, which was a mineral core hole drilled by Amico in 1979 um, as part of a copper zinc exploration program. And lo and behold, much to their surprise, uh, they discovered gas um, in a play called the Coxco Dolomite after intersecting a, a rich uh, shale interval called the Barney Creek Shale. And um, uh, being a, a mineral core, core hole, um, they weren't prepared to, to have to be flaring a gas well um, and got you know, quite a steady um, gas production rate and took them nearly um, six months before they could come back in and plug the well. Um, and it was really that historical understanding um, that was recognized within DGR Global that led to DGR you know, sponsoring Armour to pick up its large acreage position in the MacArthur, uh, which covered that entire um, Glide subbasin, um, uh, conventional Coxco, Dolomite, and Barney Creek Shale play fairway. Um, and, um, uh, you know, IPO off the back of that in, in, in 2012 is Armour. Um, and ultimately, you know, uh, execute an initial five well drilling campaign, um, which uh, both on the conventional oil and gas well perspective, but equally following the path of many of the mineral core holes that were drilled up there, um, just this repeated occurrence of live hydrocarbons, whether it was live oil or uh, gas, gas flows. Um, so uh, that was really the beginning of the journey. Um, and, and, and much like with Tamron, that journey had a, a, a bit of a hiatus, was slightly interrupted while um, uh, we went through the, the moratorium to decide exactly how these types of resources could be explored and developed, appraised and developed in a responsible way in the territory. And so that's really, you know, part of the, the journey of how Armour got started, uh, focused on oil and gas in the, in the territory. Um, a little bit of uh, dumb luck by somebody drilling for zinc. An incredible story. Um, Alistair, I'd like to bring you back in because uh, both uh, Brad and Joel have uh, have mentioned the moratorium on onshore gas uh, that was in place, but it was lifted uh, a couple of years ago. Can you talk us through why the moratorium was there and, and how it got lifted? Well, it is quite a long story. I guess going back to the point that we started this journey in 2009, uh, we knew then that uh, we had some challenges from a regulatory point of view because we knew then it was going to be an unconventional play and, and hydraulic fracturing, uh, even in those days, was um, you know, controversial. So we, we took it upon ourselves to try and um, inform, uh, get as best informed as we could uh, across the lessons learned, the mistakes that have been made, what we should be doing, best practice, all that sort of stuff. And I guess in hindsight, I think we had four inquiries over 10 years in the moratorium. So it's been, you know, it's, it's quite frustrating for industry and I fully acknowledge that. But the government needed the social licence to be able to uh, allow the industry to continue. And it, it decided to take the, um, the, the process that it did through the, through the moratorium and the inquiry. The inquiry was very rigorous. It... it um, it set out to do two things. One is um, uh, look at, uh, well, making a, a judgment of uh, is, is hydraulic fracturing able to be uh, undertaken in a, in a safe manner. And like the inquiries before it, it came up with the answer yes. On top of that, it, it said under an appropriate regulatory regime and mapped out a process for that. And thirdly, it also mapped out uh, a, um, a social licence process. So the government uh, accepted the recommendations. Uh, we're on track delivering them. Uh, it's been it's it's been one of the most um, comprehensive uh, efforts across a range of government departments that I've ever seen in my time in government. Um, and yeah, it's on track. Uh, well, let's uh, compare the Northern Territory to to other gas producing uh, states. Um, Alistair, where does the Northern Territory currently sit compared to uh, to other states? So I guess, again, back to my 
former comments were you know, humble beginnings, but then with the advent of uh, offshore gas and LNG, and the, uh, we're now one of the three major uh, LNG hubs. But um, I think I'm close to quoting you here, Joel. But um, Beedaloo being one of the hottest plays on the on the planet. Uh, to put that in other other words, uh, I'm pretty sure that I'm right here that the Beedaloo is probably one of the only tier one plays in the world right now. So uh, in com compared to other states, if, if Beedaloo's economic, we're way ahead. I write a lot of articles uh, on the Beedaloo. Um, analysts have compared it to the US shale boom, as uh, as has Joel. Um, would you agree that that's what we're dealing with here, Alistair? Well, repeating Joel's words, um, in 2009, it was, um, I, I can't remember the name of the geologist, but he came in and took me through um, the, the physical uh, geology that they had discovered and what they thought, and they then compared it to the Marcellus. And sort of over over time, that comparison has proven more and more correct. So, um, yeah, I think it's um, we're very fortunate with the resource that we've got. And again, I think it's a, a tier one resource. Let's talk about uh, where we are onshore. Uh, the MacArthur, uh, the Beedaloo. Uh, Brad, how, how remote are we talking and whereabouts are these, these basins located uh, in the Northern Territory? Um, principally, we're looking at the central and uh, the uh, uh, north, uh, central northeast portion of the Northern Territory. Um, uh, let's, I guess the way to look at it today is they're far less remote than they were in 2009 and certainly far less remote uh, when looking at when Amoco drilled that uh, Glide uh, River 9 uh, mineral core hole. Um, uh, there has been one, both, you know, the development of a market, a much larger market um, uh, in Darwin um, around it as an LNG export hub. Um, there has been, you know, the successful development of the Negi pipeline in, uh, by G Gemini. Um, uh, as Epic Energy, um, we first studied uh, building a very similar pipeline um, that ultimately became the Negi, um, you know, moving over from Tennant Creek to Mount Isa and then ultimately um, into the rest of the, uh, the Queensland market. Um, and so you have this, you know, very significant resource um, in the Beetaloo, very significant resource in the MacArthur sitting right between two major LNG export centers. Um, one, the most proximate being in Darwin, and then, you know, four gas hun hungry um, LNG export terminals um, that are having to run very, very hard in the field, uh, drilling coal seam gas, coal seam gas wells to uh, uh, stay full. Um, so, uh, you know, by um, other countries' perspectives, um, the, this portion of the Northern Territory will, you know, certainly be remote, but it's far closer and far more connected um, in, from an energy markets perspective today than it was 10 years ago. Well, let's focus uh, or hone in on what this basin could mean for the Australian economy. We've had only a few wells or a handful of wells sunk over the last two years. Joel, what have we found? Because it's not just gas, is it? Look, where we're, where we're focused, um, you know, in our two assets is an area called the core Beetaloo. And it's um, what I would call to be a very dry gas play. Um, the liquids component that we see in, in Netherlands Sewell is a third party auditor that's come in and looked at kind of, you know, all the properties sort of in the core Beedaloo area. And, you know, they see about five barrels per million of, 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 of condensates, which is very low relative to, you know, liquid rich plays that you see in the, in the U.S. where they trend at about 100 to 150 barrels per million. So this, we're talking about five barrels a million in, in the play that we're chasing. So this is first, you know, characterized as a dry gas play. Um, I think that's the, the first point I want to make. Um, look, what we've seen so far, um, again, we are, you know, one of the most active companies in, in the core Beedaloo. Um, 
participating in two horizontal wells with Santos as we speak. Um, we've completed our first horizontal uh, called Tannerbury 2H um, a, few, a few months ago. And we're currently drilling our, our second horizontal called Tannerbury 3H. And we look to flow test both wells in the next 30 to 60 days. So what we've seen so far in drilling these two horizontals is, is quite exciting, actually. Um, it, if, if you uh, remember, you know, I mentioned before the, the first well that we drilled, Tannerbury 1, we did a vertical frack on that, on that well. And what that vertical frack showed us is the flowback um, was coming from 80% uh, of the flow that we saw from the vertical frack was coming from a very sweet section within the mid Valkyrie B that really identified where we wanted to drill a horizontal. And when we drilled into that uh, sweet area, what we saw is very uh, naturally fractured shale. And so what that means is, um, you know, unlike other shale plays uh, around the world that Arcea is not as productive, you don't actually have to frack as much uh, to, to get enormous amount of productivity out of a horizontal. And so uh, this is very good. Uh, it's, it's a very positive um, bit of uh, information uh, along the sweet area of the mid Valkyrie B where we're drilling our horizontal. And, and look, the, the key information will be once we, we perform our completion uh, in the next 30 to 60 days is to get flow. And we're gonna learn really two key bits of information. One is the in initial production that we'll see from each of the wells. And then, you know, we're gonna look to test this well, these both of these wells from 90 to 180 days. Um, and so what we'll see over that period is, is sort of what the decline looks like. And to Alistair's sort of comment and my previous comment around matching, you know, performance versus the, the Marcellus, we'll really get to see kind of how that lines up. And, um, you know, so very exciting days, I think. And, and subject to seeing, you know, the productivity that we anticipate uh, in, our, in our horizontal drilling, you know, th this is where I think you're going to see a tipping point where we can move very quickly to, uh, to establish what I, what we're focused on as a company is, a, is, is trying to establish the initial pilot development where, I you know, we, we, we would look to, you know, produce up to 100 TJs a day into the Southeast market. Am I right in saying, Joel, um, that Tamburan is is perhaps the most active player in the Beetaloo? Yeah, that's that, that's correct. Look, we part of our IPO proceeds that we raised earlier in the year um, was were you know new capital uh, to fund our share of the two wells that I just mentioned, plus drilling our first um, solely owned well on EP one thirty six, which is a um, a tenement that's very uh, close. Um, and adjacent to EP161 where we're drilling our two horizontals. So we're going to learn information from these two horizontals that we're drilling with Santos at $0.25 cent dollars and be able to deploy uh, those learnings into our 100% acreage um, in a well that we call Maverick 1 that we plan to drill in the early part of next year. So over the next uh, six months, you know, four big wells are being drilled, two by Santos that we're participating in, one by um, Origin Energy that's drilling right to the north uh, west of our EP136 and a well called the 76S2 well, and then our 100% owned Maverick 1 well that we plan to spud in the first half of next year. So out of four wells being drilled in the core Beetaloo, we're going to participate in three of them, three out of four wells. So so the, you're definitely correct that out of the, uh, the drilling activity, you know, we're going to be the most active driller in, in the basin. Brad, um, your acreage is not specifically in the Beetaloo Basin. It's uh, it's in the Macarthur. Uh, what are your tenements in comparison? Where are your tenements, I should say, in comparison to to Tamburans? Yeah, we we've got uh, thirteen tenements. Um, uh, the six six of which are are granted areas, um, all in the Macarthur Basin. We do have one application area, um, EP. Um, 196 EPA 196, which does uh, tuck into the Beetaloo. Um, it would be located um, due south of um, uh, Tamburn's acreage. Um, it's not a it's not a large block, 
Um, but our principal acreage, our granted six granted tenements, are immediately to the east, um, and it's where the Beetaloo Subbasin comes up to the Emu Fault Zone, uh, the Emu Ridge, um, and uh, we've probably got the most you know structurally complex multi-layered play system um, in the uh, in uh, the region um, with the, um, uh, you know, uh, three principal unconventional shale intervals, um, two to three um, conventional um, uh, uh, reservoir pairs with those shales, um, starting with the, the, the Barney Creek shale as our sh uh, shallowest target zone, which is then a media overlay, uh, overlaying the Coxcone Reward Dolomites um, as that conventional reservoir pair. And then when we move deeper into the Tawala group, um, uh, we get this stacked pay system where we'll see both Willowgarang and McDermott shales matched up with um, Willowgarang and McDermott conventional reservoir pairs. So um, it's quite an interesting system for us that um, while drilling um, any given well, we can have multiple primary and secondary targets, um, all depending on where we are along that, that ridge. Um, uh, what does make the, the, the MacArthur acreage um, unique is, um, I believe that we entirely encapsulate the, the Glide Subbasin, which is the principal um, province of that Coxco Dolomite, where the, the Glide River um, mineral core was drilled and subsequently where Armour drilled five wells back in 2012, 2013 with um, 80% success rate. Alistair, we've seen uh, unprecedented uh, capital expenditure on onshore gas exploration over the last uh, couple of years in the Northern Territory. Uh, how is the Northern Territory government encouraging investment? Yeah, certainly. Thanks. I think, I think the first thing is to try and provide as much certainty as possible uh, around uh, regulation and, and the requirements for industry. And that has uh, been a bit of a process because we've, we've come out of the, uh, firstly, the moratorium and then uh, uh, lifted after the scientific inquiry and then the 135 recommendations and then implementing those uh, um, recommendations. So we've... We've been engaged with industry, uh, not not me myself, uh, the Department of Industry, Tourism and Trade, who are the regulators in conjunction with the Department of Environment, but they've had regular um, uh, engagement with industry as as we progress through the recommendations to try and increase or, or provide as much um, certainty as we can. The second component is around um, the Territory Economic uh, Recovery Commission process, and that is about um, how do we how do we grow the economy? And there's a, a you know the Northern Territory government now has an aspiration of uh, forty billion dollars by 2030, and that's that is that's a big ask. And so there's a lot that needs to uh, happen there to enable that to to happen. That's um, uh, resulted in uh, three commissioners: a investment commissioner, a major projects commissioner, and an infrastructure commissioner. Um, and they've hit the ground running. The infrastructure commissioner, in my view, is especially important to uh, work with counterparts, particularly at the Australian government level, in in the foundational infrastructure that's required for the Beetaloo, um, for the, in the first case roads, uh, airstrips, that sort of thing. But then, as we move uh, further down the uh, production timeline, uh, other foundational infrastructure. So. Um, that, that's really important. I think the last point I'd make is that the uh, Northern Territory has got demonstrable evidence around uh, attracting investment and delivering major projects. So we've, you know, we've seen the Impex project is well known. Uh, prior to that was the DLNG. Uh, we've seen the, uh, the, the uh, railway from um, Adelaide to, to Darwin, uh, the Gemina pipeline, and, and there's a range of other examples uh, I could provide as well. So what's the government's message? Why, why choose the onshore Northern Territory um, other than other, well, rather than other states or territories? Sorry, Joel, I'm going to quote you again. Uh, it starts with the rocks. 
and uh, we believe we've got the rocks and, and uh, the evidence is, is looking more and more so. So I think that's, uh, that's the first thing. The second thing uh, is we have the benefit of hindsight and we've put a lot of effort into planning and learning uh, the, from the experiences of others. I think our geographical location, um, we're at the north of Australia and at the south of half of the world's population and the, the biggest part of the growing economies of the world. Uh, so I think all those things add up to making the Northern Territory very strategic. Alistair, um, we, we've, we've gone through the, the moratorium, but what's now in place to protect communities and the environment in the top end? Uh, two, two parts to that. Uh, I, I guess the results of uh, the PEPA report, which was the scientific inquiry, are all about protecting the environment and, and safeguarding community values and, and the implementation of those um, recommendations is, is paramount to achieving that outcome. I guess the other thing from a community point of view is, is planning. Uh, and I've used an experience of, that was explained to us in America uh, as a result of developments in Dakota where um, that their resource became evident. Uh, 20,000 almond turned up in a very short period of time uh, with a lot of good, but also a lot of um, controversy. And, and we need to plan for that. So we're, we're doing that. We're doing exactly that. We've spent um, just in the last um, few weeks, we've been talking to counterparts in Western Australia about uh, the consequences of a 200 odd billion dollar infrastructure spend in the Pilbara uh, region. A lot of good, but a lot of planning that's required to minimise the impost. So again, it's learning learning the lessons of others and implementing them. My guests are Alistair Trier, Chair of the Northern Territory, Territory Gas Task Force, Joel Riddle, CEO of Tambourine Resources, and Brad Lingo, Managing Director of Armour Energy and MacArthur Oil and Gas Director. Uh, we're discussing the future of the Beetaloo Basin and the MacArthur Basin, the onshore gas industry in the Northern Territory. Uh, as I said earlier, Joel, uh, Tambourine only recently joined the ASX. Why did you list? Look, it was it was it was a, four, a few a few different reasons. Uh, one is you know we were as a company looking to grow um, and sourcing capital of obviously you know very challenging for a, a private entity um, in in oil and gas. And so you know after studying you know the many options that we had, some of which you know uh, included you know listing in the U.S. and other exchanges around the world. You know, we recognized that the ASX was, um, you know, a natural uh, fit for, you know, the asset mix that we had. We also have formed lots of relationships here in the capital markets, um, um, certainly over the last eight years that I've been in country. Um, and we, we saw a lot of demand uh, for, um, you know, bringing forward a very unique growth uh, business plan profile that we have as a company focused in the Beetaloo. Again, getting a lot of attention, um, and you know, investors, you know, naturally would would like to play in a pure way, um, you know, a, a growth story, you know, that are, that is primarily focused um, in the Beetaloo Basin, um, that is in this early stage, um, you know, kind of this tipping point, so to speak, uh, in which this moves from an expiration type play to a development play in which if you look at experiences of, um, you know, investors in the U.S. and the shell plays, you know, the investors that got involved in early, early on, you know, made many multiples of their money. Um, and um, so a lot of the investors that we met with, you know, really understood that. Uh, and, and when you look at the, the IPO that we completed, uh, you know, majority of the capital that was raised came from a lot of the institutions, um, some institutions that are, you know, from the U.S. that were very, um, you know, very well versed in the shell plays that um, they've made, um, you know, many, many returns on over the years. And so, um, you know, all that kind of came together for us um, in kind of early part of last year. And, um, you know, really resulted in us, um, you know, building some momentum 
uh, around investor interest. We completed a pre-IPO round early in, in the year, and then that led to the, the listing um, in early July. Do you mind explaining what your acreage position is uh, now and how you're operating? So two primary assets. Uh, again, we have a joint venture with, with, with Santos on our primary block, EP161. This is the block that we've held since 2009, so we know it very well. Um, that, that block, by the way, is centered right in the depth center of the Mid-Valkyrie play. And, you know, our guys come from the, from the place of, you know, a lot of depth and understanding the geology and know-how uh, from the U.S. shale basins that um, a lot of guys on our team have a lot of knowledge on. Um, and so really that led to us pegging EP161 right in the center of the play. Um, and, you know, obviously, as I mentioned before, this is where we're drilling our two horizontal wells um, that are essentially twins to Tannerbury number one, um, the play opening well we drilled in 2013 with Santos. What's really exciting is a is a bit of acreage that we acquired in the early part of last year uh, called EP-136. It was historically owned by Sweet Pea Petroleum. And what's exciting about this EP-136 permit is it's directly adjacent to EP-161. Um, so again, you know, this is a, this is a permit that's centered right in the depot center and for everyone on the call that's not, not aware of, you know, what the depth of center means is in a shell play, this is in the deepest area uh, of the shell play in which uh, when you study the, the U.S. Um, shell revolution and what really, you know, what really kickstarted development were operators focusing in this depth of center. And the reason why is because this is where in a shell play, the, the rock properties exhibit very high uh, porosity, very high permeability. And because it's so deep, it's, you know, where you have a lot of pressure. And so all that adds up to high productivity wells and high economic value per well. And so that's why we've been strategically focused in the, in the depth of center and the Beetaloo, uh, again, with our EP161 block that we've held, uh, you know, for over 10 years and then EP136 that we acquired last year. And so it really sets up for a very exciting uh, next few years for Tamborn, given that we, we're having these res near-term results on EP161 with our horizontal drilling, and we're able to take those res results and the learnings and apply those learnings to EP136, where we own 100% and we operate. And, you know, we're, we're very excited because this allows us to really control our destiny now, uh, being, you know, 100% and, and having operatorship. And one of the things that we've also done in the last six months is we've hired, um, you know, a, a, a technical and operating team that has uh, a lot of experience in the Permian Basin. Um, you know, th this team previously worked for Pioneer Natural Resources, who, um, you know, is one of the preeminent shell players uh, out of the U.S. And in particular, the, the COO that we've hired is a fellow by the name of Farron Thibodeau. And Farron uh, previously led Apache's business in the Permian Basin, um, has over 39 years of experience in the oil and gas industry. And he's most importantly going to be based in Darwin. And so we think that's very critical um, to building, you know, an operating um, presence uh, very close to our, our, our operating uh, asset in EP136, uh, just about 500 kilometers south of Darwin. So, um, you know, we couldn't be more excited because, it, you know, I think, I think again, with the success of these two horizontal wells, Town of Brandy 2 and 3, uh, as I mentioned, this is really the tipping point uh, for, I think, the, the core part of the Beetaloo Basin where we can really start uh, accelerating the initial development that we envision, um, you know, being focused in, in the core Beetaloo specifically on EP136. So how big a development are you looking at? I mean, how many wells are there going to be? Um, can, you, can you enlighten us as to the future plan? Look, the number of wells is going to be dependent on, you know, the, the results of these two horizontals. That's going to really guide us toward the productivity and most importantly, the recovery of, of reserves per well. And so that'll allow us to adequately plan what we envision to be a pilot. Uh, mm -hmm. That would be the first step. And that pilot development... Uh, that, that we envision uh, would be 100 million cubic feet a day. 
Uh, we would look to access the Northern Gas Pipeline that's operated um, by Gemina, which we have a joint venture with. And, um, you know, we would envision that 100 million cubic feet a day to establish the initial production as early as 2025. Now, the number of wells, you know, th these are going to be a handful of wells. It's going to be somewhere in the order of 10 to 20, 20 wells uh, initially. And then, you know, the scope that we would envision from there is, is once we get the pilot on and, and better understand kind of uh, the productivity and the recovery per well, the cost per well, um, again, deploying a lot of the U.S. technology, um, we can then be in, informed through this, this IP that we would have developed through the pilot uh, around fulfilled development. And, you know, fulfilled development schemes you know, roughly, and uh, you know, we would envision up to a BCF a day um, ultimately being developed, um, you know, potentially, you know, 500 million cubic feet a day uh, to Darwin and another 500 million a day to the Southeast um, where, you know, there's, there's the domestic market and obviously three other LNG plants. Uh, but those, you know, that's in the early stages. Um, and that's obviously going to be a function of the, the, the way the pilot, um, you know, performs. And, you know, that's where we see, you know, the natural next step. Uh, and that's really following the same playbook uh, as, as operators have, um, you, know, you know, conducted in, in the early stages of a, of a shell play in the U.S. Joel, I want to pick up on something else um, you mentioned. You mentioned um, how experienced your team is, which, as we all know, is, uh, is vital to a project's success. But the Northern Territory itself has quite a small population in comparison to, to many other states and territories. Given that it has a smaller population, how do you foresee handling workforce challenges? Look, we see it as, as an opportunity. I think one thing that Alistair mentioned um, up front that I 100% would agree with is that, you know, once the Beetaloo development starts um, really starting to move um, left to right, you know, we see potential for jobs uh, for Territorians uh, to take part in, um, you know, and, and these jobs are not just office jobs in Darwin, but these are, you know, jobs in the field, um, very similar to the, to the, you know, growth in jobs that, that you know, Alistair mentioned uh, in Dakota and similar type profile and, and upswing in jobs that, that occurred in Pennsylvania when the Marcellus sort of started to really take off. Um, we would envision a very similar um, type, type growth in, out of Darwin. And, um, you know, this is something that as a company, we're going to be very committed to working with government on. Obviously, you know, we believe in a lot of abundance we have an abundance mentality where, you know, everyone can win um, as, as, this, as this play takes off. And, uh, you know, we're going to be looking to, to work with, you know, side by side with government, community. Um, and that's really what drove, you know, our decision to, to put our COO right in, you know, based in Darwin. So we can, um, you know, be on the ground. We think that's incredibly important to have presence on the ground, um, and um, that's something we're very committed to. Well, I guess if the industry is going to be as, as big as it is in the Northern Territory, it's a good time to buy a house up there, hey? Um, <laughs> Brad, uh, while, while Tambourine has been out drilling a lot of wells, um, you haven't been idle either. Uh, what has MacArthur Oil and Gas and Armour been up to? Yeah, what um, uh, coming out of the moratorium, I guess we were a bit of a, a slow starter getting uh, re-engaged. Um, in exploration activity, um, but uh, we uh, in entirely intend to be quite a fast follower. Um, the first thing that we've completed is uh, the largest privately acquired airborne uh, geophysical survey um, uh, in Australia, um, certainly in the in the territory, uh, covering over twenty thousand square kilometers, um, and in particular to help direct our. Um, go forward activity in terms of both seismic and drilling. Um, we are uh, just yesterday um, going through the preliminary results of um, that airborne survey, and that's really directing um, the next phase of activity, um, which will involve um, both um, uh, significant uh, seismic acquisition. It'll also in, in involve uh, significant uh, activity associated with 
um, previous wells drilled, um, uh, re-entry, additional extended production testing, um, deepening um, to also uh, um, uh, explore, appraise, assess um, uh, those uh, uh, unconventional, conventional um, reservoir pairs. Um, and, uh, you know, we're putting together quite a, quite a significant um, program um, that we're making, you know, the cornerstone of the MacArthur IPO. This panel discussion is part of the Northern Territory Resources Week and the longest-running gas conference in Australia, SEOC. Alistair Trier is the chair of the Northern Territory Gas Task Force. Joel Riddle is the CEO of Tambourine Resources. And Brad Lingo is the CEO of Arma Energy. We've discussed a lot about projects, but let's take a look at demand now and the future of energy. We are in an energy transition, but the demand for gas is increasing. The latest data from the Office of the Chief Economist shows increasing LNG prices on the back of international demand. Domestically, we are also struggling to bring the price of gas and electricity down. This bodes well for MacArthur Oil and Gas, doesn't it, Brad? It certainly does. Um, you know, you always want to go to market. You always want to be focused on a commodity that um, uh, at the time you got started in it um, was probably unappreciated or underappreciated and uh, find out that you're actually in uh, uh, the commodity that everyone is saying, oh my gosh, we actually do need it and we need a lot of it. Mm. Um, uh, you know, we have seen over the last, you know, week uh, or so, um, everyone waking up and, uh, you know, realizing that, you know, we're potentially have another energy crisis right on our hands. Um, uh, they're running out of, uh, you know, hydrocarbon resources in, in the UK, struggling with that. Um, uh, the um, reawakening of economies in a post-COVID world um, is recognizing significant underinvestment or delayed investment in, you know, core hydrocarbon resources. And when you start talking about LNG spot prices in Asia of over $20 um, uh, an MCF, um, that tells you that demand is quickly outstripping, you know, immediate supply. Uh, what's your What's your outlook, Joe? Look, I, I agree with everything that Brad just mentioned. Um, you know, I think the government's been very clear with what you know when they look out over the next five or ten years and dramatic uh, wedge of shortfalls that that are anticipated. Um, in, in the Australian domestic market. And, you know, so quite simply, you know, we, we've really tied our business plan to uh, really addressing that, trying to be part of the solution. Um, but one of the points I want to also stress that I think you mentioned, Paul, was, you know, we are moving into a, um, you know, a, an a, a energy market uh, largely that is looking to consume cleaner forms of energy. And, you know, we think gas is the, you know, going to be a key part of that, particularly low CO2 gas. And, you know, one of the things we're going to be committed to as a company, as we develop uh, in the Beetaloo, where, you know, gas has CO2 contents of 2 to 3%, is looking to offset that uh, through a really a combination of looking at carbon capture, integrating renewables, and um, at the last resort, uh, purchasing carbon offsets so that when we develop, you know, we're developing a net zero gas stream. Uh, and we think, you know, that at a very minimum, you know, is going to demand a premium price as it hits the market. At the very maximum, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll be really differentiated versus other uh, more dirtier forms of energy as, as we move forward. And, 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 you know, the one data point that I always mention is, you know, LNG buyers in Japan are 15 of them that committed to only buying net zero cargoes in 2050. Um, that is where I see the energy market transitioning to. Um, and, you know, that's the bellwether that I think as a, as an industry, you know, we are, you know, being, you know, forced to adjust to. And, you know, this is where, again, the Beetaloo is a, is a, is a natural fit uh, as it relates to, um, you know, development of cleaner forms of energy, but for two reasons. One is the scale 
uh, it's, you know, multiple TCFs of, of potential. Um, and two is just the, you know, it's very far down on the, on the CO2 curve um, from a starting point. And so, you know, with it being two to 3%, it's very economical for a developer like Tamboran to offset that, that two to 3% and, um, you know, satisfy what's being demanded in Japan uh, by 2050. Alistair, I'd like to bring you back in now. There's um, a lot of talk about uh, downstream opportunities. Uh, can you speak to the five-point plan that you've developed? Yeah, thanks very much, uh, um, Paul. I, I guess the five-point plan was developed in response to uh, our, our initial trips to the United States after our, we started to realise in 2009 that the Beetaloo was quite significant and we, as I mentioned earlier, we went across to learn uh, about um, regulation and how we could get ahead a, a of the game there. But we kept on asking uh, the question, if you had your time again, what would you do? And the consistent answer was plan. Mm. And um, we really took that on board. And that's what the five-point plan is about. It's about what mechanisms can we uh, bring to bear to get the best benefit that we can uh, for Territorians and Australians more uh, broadly. And that's not about um, you know, wrenching every last dollar out of intra industry. In, in, in fact, it's entirely the opposite. It's just making sure that we can get the best value for the dollars that are going to be spent and channeled into, into benefits of local communities. So the five-point five plan um, focuses on LNG and establishing or uh, continuing uh, Darwin's journey as a world-class LNG hub, services and supply, and that's a, you know, fairly understandable to, for, for local businesses to be able to benefit. Establishing uh, a manufacturing hub uh, based on, on gas and, I guess, getting the, 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 the value per uh, molecule that, that manufacturing brings, uh, skills, research and innovation, uh, again, jobs, and, and lastly, uh, contributing to energies, uh, Australia's energy security. So, to both Brad and Joel's uh, comments, the the few with with the prices of energy now, or of of gas now, what can we do to contribute to Australia's? Um, I suppose provide more certainty around uh, the cost and the reliability of electricity uh, uh, down the track. I'd like to pick up on um, sort of training and upskilling, if you like. Um, this is key to, to industry growth of, of any kind. Um, if you don't have the labour, you don't necessarily have the industry. Uh, what are you as chair of the gas task force uh, doing to attract uh, talent to the industry and the Northern Territory uh, for that matter? Well, I think I, I need to be upfront here and say that we had a bit of a false start. So um, we probably got ahead of ourselves uh, in understanding just the realities of developing uh, a, a play such as the Beetaloo in that it has to go through a series of stages to move to move to the competence uh, needed that it's economic to, to drive the, the significant investments. And I guess um, that takes longer than was first realised and that we need to recognise that. But we, we're starting now to focus uh, on, a, on a sort of a fairly staged um, uh, process of identifying what's required uh, in a skills point of view at, at the lower end of technical, uh, technical ability. So what, what are the on-ground things that are needed uh, for industry as... You know, Joel was talking about one or two wells and then potentially 10 or 20 wells. And I guess, you know, with the other, other three main players in the, in the uh, Beetaloo, what that means and what the skill sets are required because training people up uh, takes time in itself and developing the training to train people up uh, takes time. So we, we need to start at a, at a fairly basic level. Uh, to do two things. One is to get the systems in place and, and the infrastructure from a training point of view uh, understood. But the second thing is to provide the confidence uh, to industry that, um, that, that, that they can invest in skills development as well going forward, knowing that, that, that we're on a pathway that's going to deliver the requirements that they need. 
Uh, one last question for you, uh, Alistair. When we talk about um, establishing a downstream uh, manufacturing industry uh, based on gas, what exactly are we talking about here? So um, I guess what we know is that we've got offshore gas uh, that's proven economic. Uh, the majority of that is, well, all of it's going to LNG at the moment, but there is offshore gas that, that uh, is currently not allocated. We've got this huge resource in the in the Beetaloo that's going through the expiration and, and soon to be appraisal stage, and that that um, we're, we're hoping that that meets all the boxes and proves economic as well. So we know we've got gas. We've got uh, other enablers. We've got land. We've got water, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we've got strategic location. Uh, and Joel mentioned carbon. Uh, the the onshore story is really good with carbon in the Beetaloo uh, below 4% in certain areas, much lower than that. Offshore, it's higher. So for offshore um, uh, gas, carbon will need to be dealt with. So that leads to carbon capture. But with those two elements, then we've got the opportunity for, for blue hydrogen and blue ammonia. But all, we're also looking at renewable projects. So with renewable projects, and there's timeframes involved in that, then, then leads to the opportunities around green ammonia and hydrogen and all of, all the of things from flow, that flow from that. Uh, if, if there are liquids in the Beetaloo, and, and the Beetaloo is quite a big place, and I think um, my understanding is different parts of the Beetaloo offer up different, um, different opportunities, then there is opportunities for petrochemicals. And, um, you know, the longer anything remains in the pipeline, the more expensive it gets. So uh, Darwin's closer to the Beetaloo than the East Coast. So we're looking to uh, we're looking to take advantage of all those opportunities, and there's a significant amount of planning that's gone into uh, the foundational requirements for uh, establishing a manufacturing precinct, including uh, pre-approvals, including the sort of infrastructure, logistics, um, and uh, corridor requirements, but also uh, infrastructure funding strategies and, and and a range of other things. We are just about out of time. I'm going to go around the panel now and uh, and ask you for final thoughts. Perhaps I could start with you, Brad. What are your final thoughts uh, to end this panel discussion? Oh, look, you know, we're incredibly excited by the the opportunity that um, the the territory presents. Um, you know, I can almost you know see you know settings that remind me of. Um, the coal, coal seam gas explosion that happened in eastern Queensland. And if you turn the clock back even further um, uh, into the, the middle of the 20th century, um, you're looking at a resource explosion potential um, that you've seen in the Pilbara. Mm -hmm. um, so Australia has uh, demonstrated that in two you know, very significant resource provinces that it can deliver these major developments. Um, for the good of Australia and good of the global uh, economy and, and do it responsibly. And I see the territory having all the marks of being able to replicate that same, um, same uh, outcome around the MacArthur Beetaloo. Joel, what are your final thoughts? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think, I think when I look at the, uh, the last, you know, 20 years, seems like every decade, you know, there is a, uh, a nice, you know, big, you know, resource, you know, development that, uh, that occurs here in Australia, the Pilbara in the early 2000s, you know, early 2010s, there was a CSG. And, and I think the next decade, you know, is definitely the Beetaloo has the potential to be equivalent, if not, you know, a, a bigger impact um, on, on Australia, um, certainly in the Northern Territory. Um, and with Darwin being strategically located, um, you know, to, to markets in, in Asia, you know, having this significant impact on decarbonization uh, in the region. And so we couldn't be more excited to be on the, you know, front end of that uh, growth. And, um, you know, we, we think it's going to be a very exciting three, next three to five years uh, as we get through, you know, out of this exploration phase that we've been sort of in for a little while uh, and moving into, you know, kind of development. And, you know, really feeding into a lot of the initiatives that Alistair and the NT government are uh, laying the 
the framework and, and uh, foundation for. And so, you know, again, we as a company are, are committed to being part of the solution. And we look at it through the lens of how, do, how does this help Australians? How does this help Territorians? Um, and um, again, you know, this gas reserve is vast and highly productive in the Beetaloo. Um, and it really can check all the boxes as it, re- it relates to being the next big development in, in Australia. Alistair, uh, what's your final thoughts? Just building on a couple of comments there, you know, with, with I, th- I think Asia or Southeast Asia is 50% uh, coal-fired at the moment, so there's huge opportunities for gas to contribute to emissions reduction in the short to medium term. Um, but gas around the world, uh, at least I, I think only 30% of it goes to energy at the moment, uh, 30% to reticulation and 40% to manufacturing. So the future for gas uh, is, is, is threefold. It's got the, the here and now uh, in, in, in providing energy to current markets. Uh, it's, got, and it's got the ability and, and, in, and displacing heavier emitters. It's got the ability to underwrite uh, a transition into hydrogen and other, uh, other uh, uh, cleaner forms of energy. And then the long-term future is a, a fundamental component of manufacturing. Gentlemen, we are out of time, but thank you for joining me. Brad Lingo is the CEO of Armour Energy and a director of MacArthur Oil and Gas. Joel Riddle is the CEO of Tambourine Resources. And Alistair Trier is the chair of the Northern Territory Gas Task Force. I'm Paul Hunt, Senior Journalist at Energy News and Mining Monthly. This panel discussion was brought to you by Aspermont Media for the annual Northern Territory Resources Conference and the Southeast Asia Australia Offshore and Onshore Conference, or SEOC. You can find out more about the conferences at ntresourcesweek.com.au or by subscribing to Energy News, energynewsbulletin.net. You can find all our panel discussions and feature interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud and on YouTube. Just search Energy News AU.